Hello and welcome to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. First things first, we are a new show, working every week to offer some discussion on the past, present, and future of the American right. And it is not easy to build that from scratch, but you can help us. So please hit that subscribe button for the show on YouTube and your podcatchers and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at RightlyAJ. Tell a friend, tell your mom, dad, sister, brother about Right Now from Rightly, a place where the next generation of conservative and libertarian thinkers aren't trying to sell you a my pillow or gold. <laughs> so do you remember the Tea Party? Big question. Armies of conservative Americans and founding father cosplay taking to the streets to stop government expansion into the healthcare sector. You might remember Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, which at the time was projected to cost about $980 billion and cost a bit more in the end. But there was drama, there was pageantry, there were organized protests and weeks of massive demonstrations by Republicans and concerned citizens alike on the Washington Mall. That same party, that same group of people, and you know who they are, they said virtually nothing to stop the passage of President Biden's $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, a spending package featuring not just direct checks to Americans, both wealthy and poor, to stimulate an economy which is finally being allowed to operate somewhat normally, but also loaded to the brim with special interest handouts and huge expansions of the welfare state. The welfare state, the Republican Party, the conservative small government party did nothing to stop that. But who cares? It's only debt. My co-host Brad Palumbo cares. He's the opinion editor at the Foundation for Economic Education. That's fee.org. He has many thoughts on that. And we're joined today by journalist Zed Jelani. Welcome, sir. It is nice to have you here with us. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, let's just start here. Zed, like you are a pretty progressive guy, but you're also intellectually honest. And I would really love to know from you, why did the GOP not show up to this fight, if you would even call it that, over Biden's spending plan? Look, I think in some ways the vote on this bill kind of served both parties, right? Uh, thanks to the Georgia elections, the Democrats actually had control of the Senate this time. The last five stimulus bills, uh, COVID bills, mm -hmm. were passed on a bipartisan basis, right? This time the Democrats didn't have to be bipartisan if they didn't want to. They had the reconciliation process. So this sort of allowed them to build the bill in the way they wanted to. They, they dealt with a lot of their priorities, like, for instance, state and local spending, pension funds, so on and so forth. And they were able to kind of dodge some GOP demands on things like school reopening. Uh, this allowed them to pass the bill on partisan lines. The Republicans, on the other hand, they did want there to be some type of bill, some type of legislation, just as mm -hmm. they wanted to pass the previous five bills. But because they didn't really need the Republican votes to pass this bill, it allowed them to basically offer party line opposition uh, to to everyone voted no without necessarily having to be too vocal about it. Because well, it's about hypocrisy, right? Like it's it's right. about being visible in your going against what they just did. It was nine hundred billion, I think, for Trump's uh, stimulus package that he put forward for COVID that they were very gleeful to support mm. um, and did so many times. But they just didn't. But fight. there was a difference between the two packages, right? I right. mean, this latest package that Biden pushed through, it had the 350 billion for state and local bailouts, even mm -hmm. though there wasn't actually really a revenue crisis. So, I mean, I mean, I think that's that's the issue here. Is like the Republicans didn't want to support it for reasons such as that, so they all voted against it. But the reason they're not too vocal about it, I think, is because the bill also had a lot of popular stuff. Like if you surveyed people about certain COVID-related elements, I think it was actually fairly popular. So they didn't want to be seen, I think, as being too opposed to a bill that did include things that I think a lot of Americans wanted, including stimulus checks, including a child tax credit, including some aid 
related to COVID-19. Uh, and, it, I, you know, I think that's why the Republicans focus on things like the state and local uh, government supports, uh, li- like certain kind of uh, spending that's viewed as more special interest oriented or at least towards more niche parts of the economy and sectors. The popularity so. part is important. Like, it's called the American Rescue Act. It's a really nice sounding bill. I think people are inclined during this weird time of crisis to support stuff like that. But I think we all know at this table, like it was filled with tons of stuff that had nothing to do right. with COVID. And so it really comes down to Republicans not telling people about I it. Like, of course it's popular. I face planted on this because I think it, it was a very popular bill. Every poll showed that. Right. But if people knew what was in it, it wouldn't have been. I mean, even PolitiFact, we would all agree is a, a liberal or nonpartisan fact checker found 90% of the bill not directly related to COVID. You had $350 billion in there for bailing out state and local governments and 15 to 20 billion for vaccines. So this was very much a partisan bill full of partisan wish lists. And I think Republicans dropped the ball on opposing this, but maybe that's because they had so little credibility left after the Trump years on fiscal issues. Yeah, Zed, was Obamacare popular? Did that poll well with most people, like the idea of having uh, universal uh, access to healthcare? I think, I think when... I, so the, the idea of universal health care pulled fairly well. I think as the ACA was moving its way through the process, it got more and more unpopular. Mm-hmm. And partly that was the actual process used to compile it. Um, it, was, it was done in a manner, I think, that alienated a lot of people. Um, but I think when, when the bill was actually passed, it was quite divisive, uh, although individual components of the bill were quite popular. So it, it, it sort of formed... I think an easier sell for the Republicans to just flat oppose it mm-hmm. uh, because the process alienated some people and there were also some components of the bill that alienated people. Uh, when it comes to something like this, I just think after the COVID-19 crisis is, is going through, it's very hard to get down to the details of these bills and actually, as Brad was suggesting, highlighting portions that may be unpopular because I think there is a much larger public demand for COVID-19 related aid. And when it came to the ACA, I don't know that there was a massive public demand for doing healthcare at that portion uh, at that point in time because a lot of people wanted to focus on the economy, you know, double right. digit unemployment, so on and so forth. So it was a little bit easier of a sell, I think, for Republicans to really ramp up the opposition to a bill like that. Uh, and for a bill like this, it just, it just you have to get into a level of nuance. It's a little bit more difficult in politics yeah. as we know it. Today. And like when it just comes in the numbers, they they did couch it in a real principled stance against the spending. The spending will kill us and bankrupt the country. And Obamacare, by and large, costs just as much as like Trump's version of COVID stimulus. Biden's is like twice as much. So it's clearly not about the spending. It's about the specifics. I mean, do Republicans, I think we all know that they do. Like they like to spend money. Um, But when it comes to the government's role in our lives, it seems that they have literally changed. Like they do not believe what they believed 10 years ago about what government owes people. So I think that might be uh, making more of a conclusion than, than we can actually draw, because these are really unique circumstances. Republicans did vote for the $2.2 trillion CARES Act in March. They voted for a $900 billion stimulus bill. But the COVID disaster was pretty unique circumstances. Once in a lifetime emergency, we're already seeing a lot of these Republicans return to talking about the debt, return to talking about interest payments. With no credibility. With Sure, some of them. Some of them did have credibility. There were a few that stayed consistent on this. But Biden's just come out to, uh, this week with a plan for $3 trillion more. So we've already spent $6 trillion in the last year. Uh, now he wants $3 trillion more on climate change, education, infrastructure, universal pre-K, and free community college for all. We are seeing, I think, Republicans rediscover this fiscal conservatism. Do you think, do you think Zed, it will make a comeback under Biden, these kinds of Tea Party principles? You know, I think it. I think it's 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 difficult to say because we're so early in on this, and I think really COVID nineteen has shifted the the playing field so much. Because I think right now, 
During the COVID-19 crisis, you know, the government forcibly shut down like a huge swath of businesses across the country, right? So a lot of people, even if you're conservative leading, are thinking, well, we're owed something, right? We're owed something after what the government yeah. did to us over the past year. Uh, the question is, how long does that feeling last? Like a year from now, if we're talking about, you know, $1.5 trillion, $2 trillion infrastructure bill, are people going to be saying, okay, the economy is functioning pretty well now, do we really need a massive federal investment on this? And I think that that's really, to me, it's, it's really a matter of the fiscal conservative side has has to somehow regain its momentum because I think its momentum has just been sapped by the the series of crises that we had over the past year. I think a lot of conservatives are much more focused on cultural issues, on immigration, on things like uh, you know policing and public safety. And I just think that there isn't the exact same energy that there was under Tea Party. I mean, Tea Party was when I first moved to D.C. and started working sort of in, in politics we were so in 2009. Young. <laughs> we were so young. Right, I was so young back then. <laughs> and I remember how tough the libertarian, fiscal conservative message was everywhere you went. You yeah. know, it was throughout cable news. Uh, there was tons of organizing. There was huge Tea Party rallies. Right now, all of that's basically sapped. And I think it's a matter, if that side wants to regain any, any of its footing in the debate, it's really a matter of regaining momentum because it's not a matter of you don't have institutions, you don't have politicians who believe those things. Of course, you have all that. But you have to be able to capture that public narrative in order to actually push that. And I think right now the public narrative has been shifted towards we were in a really rough time altogether mm -hmm. during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have to be able to, to get some spending through the door, even through repeated packages, to recover from that. And I don't think we will feel fully recovered yet. And that's well, why I think, I think you, you mentioned have about like the idea that people are owed something is really important. The government shut down the economy. COVID didn't shut down the economy necessarily. The government stopped people from working and having their livelihoods. So you can make a theory that they kind of owe you a check to keep things going. Um, but then like Trump was the guy who reoriented the, the Republican Party around supporting things like Social Security. He threw out the Paul Ryan version of the party. And that was the party that when you and I both came to DC around the same time, we were kind of like looking at the exact same thing. They were really serious about Social Security is going bankrupt. The government can't actually fund this. It's a Ponzi scheme. And there is this thing that Trump realized, which is that Republican voters don't really believe that or care. They don't really care if it doesn't make economic sense. They want the government to take care of them because they feel like that's sort of its job. Like, and that's what they get to be as Americans. Um, and that's why there was always this angst about illegal immigrants being the ones who are pillaging the system in their view. It's not actually true. But that's what it all comes back to. We're Americans. We're owed something. Do people read into that too much, though, in the sense that how much was Trump's election really about policy? They'll say it represented mm. a sea change and abandoning yeah. fiscal conservatism. Well, I think it, rep it represented a lot of people angry at the establishment, angry at the elite, who are voting on culture war, not so much on policy. But that is about culture, like whether or not the government owes you something. Like that is about well, a sense I, of what the country that, is. I think ultimately Trump didn't necessarily shift the policies themselves that much because as, as Brad was saying, like a lot of his election was just about like, you know, certain culture war memes or personality or so on and so forth. However, he did kind of prove that you can go all the way through a Republican primary and just dissent from a tons of tons of different like GOP orthodoxies, whether it was on Iraq, whether it was on trade, whether it was on Social Security and Medicare, him saying he didn't want cuts there, that the Republican voters are not necessarily going to punish you for taking those positions. Now, when What's he actually didn't got- didn't govern as, as fairly standard fiscally conservative with the exception of trade? I think, no, I think that's true. He also- that's the other half of it, is that he didn't dissent that much from the GOP orthodoxy in terms of actual governing, a little bit on trade, he was a little bit to the left on trade, a little bit to the right on immigration, uh, but he didn't really dissent that much in terms of his actual governing posture, and then the GOP voters kind of didn't punish him for that either. So it kind of shows that like, 
this set of economic policy issues has maybe less relevance to the GOP voter base than maybe people had assumed 10 or 10 or 15 years ago. Now, how that plays out for the Repu- for the future of the Republican Party, I think, remains to be seen. I mean, will it be that you know the next Republican presidential candidate, you know, weighs in very heavily on culture, gets very much into divisive, like you know, gets fighting about things like transgender uh, individuals in sports or things Josh like that. Josh Hawley is the perfect fusion of this politician, right? That co- that covers both those issues. Well, this is interesting mm-hmm. because just the other day, Trump gave one of his first interviews since leaving office, and he he dropped a couple names about keep an eye on these people, the future of the GOP. He said. Uh, Rand Paul, Josh Hawley, uh, Christy Nome from uh, this. I'm glad the patronage paid off. Right, but think about it like this. You can have have people with totally divergent economic views, but they're on the same page on the culture war, like Josh Mm -hmm. Hawley and Rand Paul. To me, that's very diagnostic of the future of the GOP. It's up for grabs for anybody who they could run on a very different policy agenda if they're playing to the tribal base, which really ultimately I think determines most people's votes. I, I think that that's a really good point. I think a lot of a lot of American politics right now is based on like negative polarization, right? It's yeah. a matter of like, can you own the libs, or like, you know, can you can you do something uh, towards some kind of foundational conservative beliefs? Are you, you know, are you in some manner showing that you are a respectable and loyal opponent of the other side? Fighter. And it's funny that Trump named these people who, in many ways, don't agree with each other at all, like Rand Paul, Christy Nome. Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, you know, you put four of them in a room, you might get five opinions on things, right? Like, they, they have a, a range of differences. That's a political I, party, right? But I think Trump viewed them, one, as loyal to him because he, he always cares about that. And two, he views them, I think, as steady and, like, rigid opponents of all of his opponents, which are Democrats, media institutions, so on and so forth. And I think that really does open up a future for the Republican Party that, in some ways— you know, what we just described maybe is somewhat cynical. Like we're saying voters don't care that much about policy. It's all about, you know, this cultural posture. But in some ways, it's kind of optimistic because it also shows that there's a lot of room for people who want to create policy in a certain direction, either it's a libertarian direction or it's a more populist direction. Those people, I think, will have a lot of room to argue as long as they, they can kind of manage well, the culture. Marco Rubio is a perfect example of that. I mean, so he came out uh, in support of Amazon workers looking to unionize kind of broke everybody's brains, mine included, like, well, Marco Rubio is supporting this. This is not a typical Republican position. But he couched it in culture war, didn't he? Mm. Like, he was like, if Amazon is going to ban books, then their workers need to be able to unionize uh, against them. It was more about, like, owning Bezos. Owning the woke corporation. <laughs> owning it, Amazon. It was, but also it was somewhat clever on his part, yeah. because I think Rubio, since 2016, has hired up a lot of staff, I know some of them, who are interested in having a more industrial policy for the United States. You know, they're fearful of China. And I don't, I think actually on an economic basis, they don't like Amazon in many ways, but they understand that what the Republican voter base cares about is that you can't buy certain books that dissent from certain liberal orthodoxy on Amazon anymore, right? As a monopoly power. And so I think that's why he was going to couch it in this language. He wasn't, he's not going to say workers of the world unite (laughs) because what Republican voters are going to go for that? But he is going to talk about Look, you care about being able to, to speak freely and to read freely and to, to see things freely, uh, to wa- watch the entertainment you want to do and so on and so forth. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's a brilliant example, really, of how this Republican Party can go any number of directions as long as you're, you know, as long as you're able to maintain certain cultural postures that aren't too alienating to the base. Like populism. You mentioned populism a moment ago, and there is very much, whether we like it or not, a populist sentiment among the voter base. But here's my question, Zed, is... 
Can't populism also be a free market message? I mean, you wrote, for example, a Wall Street Journal op-ed about the idea of a big government bailout for student loans is actually not progressive. It's a handout that disproportionately benefits uh, wealthy and well-educated people at the working class taxpayers' expense. So I guess what I'm saying is maybe you could speak to that issue specifically, but also in general, can't that populist energy on some issues be harnessed for free market causes? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very important thing to understand about populism. So I wrote a, a piece in December issue of the Washington Examiner. It was, it was it was focused very much on Josh Hawley, but also on the larger populist question is that populism is not necessarily a, you know, pro-government posture or position. Populism is basically skepticism of big institutions, right? Yeah. Uh, it's rallying people against big institutions. It can be big business or it can be big government. Uh, and I think that it re- I think that in many ways the Tea Party sort of had a populist uh, sort of orientation, right? They, they saw themselves as trying to defeat bank bailouts, they saw, saw themselves as trying to defeat uh, a mandate to buy private health insurance that was being opposed to them by, by a, a government in Washington, D.C. And I think you're absolutely right that populism can be seared in any number of directions. Uh, I do think that ultimately it is difficult to kind of reconcile it with a truly individualist type of libertarianism because I think you're always going to be fighting some type of big institution. And sometimes... Uh, those big institutions are perhaps going to be defending your individual liberties and rights, and, pe- and that may end up being unpopular if you're rallying the masses of people. Um, however, I do think that there is a case to be made. Um, for instance, that what was being done with the lockdowns over the past year, right? I think mm-hmm. that the opponents of those lockdowns were in many ways populist, right? They were trying to gather uh, small business owners, people who were basically just had a small toe in the economy, and suggesting that mayors and governors who were shutting down their businesses were actually doing this in a way Walmart that Walmart bene- was open. Walmart right. was open they, the entire they were, time. <laughs> they were benefiting uh, big box stores, and they were benefiting primarily Amazon. Like yeah. Amazon's business was growing this entire time because they had to hire way more people to do deliveries, right? Um, so I think there's a very strong sort of populist case that the government shutting down all those businesses was actually in favor of big business, right? Big business and big government were working together in that case. So there are ways I think that you can shape this. Um, in a way to steer that populist energy and anger towards governing institutions as well. I don't think it's just going to be business. I mean, does it kind of eat at you as someone who would like to see big and more robust government doing more things that most of the actions that kind of big government has taken, right, mm-hmm. in recent years has been kind of for everybody instead of targeted most at the needy and the most um, uh, people on the margins of society. Because like we was talking about student debt, like you called it the Brahmin bailout, which I think is very well put uh, in relation to the Indian caste system. And that's absolutely what it is. And I, I don't know whether or not we should be trying to have a active government that does kind of the same thing for everybody or is really just about trying to raise the bottom floor. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of times these debates get you know, they get strong in between the idea, do you want an active government or do you want an inactive government, a small government or a big government? For me, it's not, you know, I'm not saying that victory is declared once the government spends a certain <laughs> amount of money or there's a certain number of agencies or Five so trillion, on and so that's forth, right? Uh, it, it's <laughs> more, it's, you know, yeah. I try to look at it, you know, piece by piece. What does the government do effectively? What does it not do effectively? There's certainly certain things that the government doesn't do very effectively. I think, you know, rent control is a classic example. Uh, even if you put 100 liberal economists in a room, most of them will probably say rent control is generally not doesn't benefit most people yeah. anyway. It benefits a small group of people. Uh, but I think there are other examples that have been fairly effective. And I think, for instance, this is something where Mitt Romney in 2012, a uh, presidential candidate on the Republican side, and Joe Biden have found some agreement and that there should be some sort of expanded child tax credit or allowance 
uh, to support families, to support people who are raising kids. I mean, it's a it's a cash transfer that I think makes a lot of sense because it, it's encouraging people to do something that's pro-social, you know, pro-natal. Biden's package does that, right? Like right. there's there's child tax credits in there. I have one child, 10. I'm supposed to be getting, I guess, now like a bonus every month or something. At some point that's supposed to happen. I don't know when. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's that's a huge thing. And I could use that for any purpose. Like I could take her out of public school, right? And put her into a charter school if I wanted with that kind of help or get her a nicer laptop to do stuff. But that's already happening. So do we need more of it? But they also attached that to a bunch of crony spending and a bunch <laughs> of carve outs. It's like, it seems like you can't get one without the other. And they know that. So I guess, Zed, one thing I wanted to ask you about was this kind of realignment we've seen where big business is now more or less often aligned with the Democrats. And Republicans are anti-big business. Mm -hmm. That's unthinkable compared to 10 years ago. But doesn't that show you something? And this is my libertarian speaking. Big government, in my view, interventions into the economy or spending trillions of dollars inevitably get skewed towards the people with the most lobbyists. And I mean, we've we've seen this uh, about like the $15 minimum wage is being lobbied for by Amazon. If it was really pro-worker, Jeff Bezos wouldn't be uh, pounding the pavement, trying to get that passed into law. So isn't that a major roadblock for a populist progressivism that uses the government to help the, the working people? Look, it's, it's very true. And I think this this goes back to what we were discussing with populism. Populism is essentially skepticism of big institutions and of power. And the government is one of those sources of power. and It is a big institution. And often I think it's its functions and, it, and its sort of uh, capacities are corrupted by money and by the fact that certain people have a much bigger voice in government than other people. And so I, I don't, you know, I take those critiques to heart and I think that they are something that people should be mindful of uh, when they're crafting public policy and when they're engaging in any kind of activism on behalf of the government, that this is an institution that often ends up on the other side. I mean, one example would be uh, pharmaceutical drugs. You know, we're all talking about vaccines right now. We're all talking about treating people um, with healthcare. One of the big government interventions that actually has been maintained under under a a successive series of presidents is that you're not allowed to buy pharmaceutical drugs from Canada or from a number of other countries, right? It's it's a very special process to get them. And the main reason that exists is because the pharmaceutical industry in the United States has lobbied the government to say it's unsafe, which is really, really funny if you know a lot about the drugs in Canada because a lot of them are just re-imported, right? They're like actually American source drugs from American companies, Uh, but they're blocking them saying it's not safe. Of course it's safe. Um, And, you know, so there are definitely some areas where I think a more libertarian-minded person, and I think a more progressive-minded person who wants to see progressive aims, and I think a progressive aim is more affordable health care, uh, should actually advocate in favor of less government. Because sometimes the government is used in ways that are corrupt, is used in ways that I think actually harm the welfare of most people, usually for the benefit of a smaller group of people. Right, and like more affordable as the issue, like with healthcare, right? Like I think we mostly agree that subsidies inflate the cost. They they take away the burden of the healthcare provider to actually be competitive and lower their prices. And the same thing's gonna happen with daycares. Like the, the Biden relief package is going to pour money, I think 400 billion might have been the number, into daycares. And it's going to inflate their uh, their ability to raise their costs. Um, I would like to make sure that people are watching over the next five to 10 years and make sure that daycare prices do not rise because they are going to blame it on the daycares and not the subsidy that they just received this month. It seems like all these big government programs have these kind of interventions. I read one study about the $15 minimum wage that said it would increase the cost of child care by thousands of dollars. So I guess I'm just skeptical you can really use the government at all to advance these causes because it seems like there's always second and third order consequences. Putting money in people's pockets does not fix the problem of the high cost of living. 
right? So I think that kind of goes to the UBI question because a lot of this seems like a precursor to a universal basic income debate. The direct checks to Americans that started before Trump left office, to me, as somebody who's been following UBI for a couple of years now and getting progressively more interested in it as I go, I was like, oh, this can work. The government actually is sort of good at this. They passed the law, and then like less than a week later, the IRS sent me money? That's nuts. I didn't I didn't honestly think that they were capable of doing something that quickly. Now you send a billion or two to dead people and, and to random and Nigerian scammers. Yeah. Like you've pointed out the fraud and, right. and you can you can continue to do that. But I was impressed. And I was like, if we can do this and we could possibly get it right, and Americans like it, is there a case for restructuring our entire idea of welfare and workfare towards UBI? You know, it's really interesting in that there have been a few studies of other places that have used UBI. So Iran, the country of Iran, used a UBI. In Alaska, they have sort of a basic income paid um, from, uh, it's a combination oil. of like oil and also like they have like some kind of state investment fund. Um, and what's really interesting is that I think conservatives made a critique of welfare. It was very prominent in the 80s and 90s. It, it culminated in welfare reform, that welfare basically created a disincentive to work. We're talking about uh, AFDC, which got turned into TANF. Yeah. Um, what's really interesting about the research on UBI is that it generally does not disincentivize work because it doesn't have an income cutoff. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a small amount of money that's given this exact same to every single person. Uh, and generally, like when they studied it in Iran, what they found is that people kept working, but they would use it to invest in their business or they yeah, use it to like... Yeah, if I could just like, say something like that, because yeah. like Andrew Yang campaigned on this, right? $1,000 a month to every American. And nobody would listen to him when he said, no one can live on $12,000 a year. They would be like, Still well, then work. people aren't going to work. And he was like, mm -hmm. no, it allows them the ability to make better choices about who they work for and where they work. So I guess I like this idea as a replacement for a lot of the programs we have now that do disincentivize work. I mean, right now with these supercharged unemployment benefits you can get a year out after the pandemic was supposed to be temporary, right? Nothing's ever temporary. You can get paid, the majority of people on unemployment can get more paid more on benefits than they can by going back to their jobs. Obviously, that is a dysfunctional system that in the long term, if kept in place, would hurt the labor market. Mm -hmm. Using something, the exact same money, taking it away from there, and putting it into a UBI wouldn't have that. So I think if it's trading off, it's a promising idea. The problem is people seem to think you can just put it on top of everything. And there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's yeah. no such thing we as never, money that comes we out We never of get sky. rid of stuff. <laughs> you can't have it all. Yeah, well, I think actually Senator Romney has, in his child allowance proposal, he is trying to consolidate some of the other programs um, to fund it, as well as I think permanently phasing out sort of this, the SALT tax cap deduction, which is kind of a non-starter for the Democrats because they, they love that deduction. They love subsidies uh, for rich Democrats. Yeah, basically it's a deduction for state and local spending, which allows basically blue states to keep their spending higher, right? Because then they can use it, they, they can tax people less and have that de deduction basically uh, almost kind of subsidize that spending. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, a tough thing to sell among uh, a Democratic-controlled Congress. Um, but I think it has a lot of promise in terms of delivering cash to families who have children, um, allowing them the leeway to use that cash as they please, because families know their own business best, right? The government doesn't necessarily know their business. Yep. Um, and it, I think it consolidates some of the other programs. So actually, I think it's it's actually like revenue neutral. It's like it's it yeah, doesn't it require it doesn't require no any debt. additional spending, doesn't require any additional debt. And I, I think it's a promising idea. And I'm sure someone can nitpick on some of the details of it, but I think it's moving in the right direction, which is suggesting that we actually 
should see the value of get, just getting additional cash to families, who are, particularly those who are a little bit on the lower end of the economic spectrum, but um, just families in general. And also understanding that some of the existing programs are not really serving the purpose that they were intended to serve. Um, and I, I think, it, you know, he he's kind of, you know, Romney is a very interesting figure because I think in 2012, he didn't propose anything like this because they were, we were still in the Tea Party mindset, right? Everything the government ever does is wrong. Just don't, <laughs> you know, don't even think about it. But I think now Romney is moving to a place where he understands there are some interventions that can be helpful um, and there are some interventions that can be harmful. You know, his more moderate mindset about this, I think, is, is allowing him to get to a policy that I think we can wrestle with and I, we, we can actually make into something workable. Yeah, and I think what you're putting your, your finger on there is the, the old idea, particularly in conservative circles, that the government is somehow neutral and that when the government has a policy, that it is not expressing a value. Like the idea of, of, of workfare, that you have to work a certain amount of hours or present evidence that you're looking for a job to receive welfare is one thing. Um, but then that the government also should express virtues that it has, like UBI, that like if you are a mother and staying at home at work, you should be getting paid for that. Like that is a value thing. Um, and what Romney, I think, is trying to reorient the party around, along with Josh Hawley, is saying like, the government has values and it expresses ours. So we need to try to get people to have more kids through a tax carve out. I don't really know how that actually works in reality. And, you know, there's there's also another element to this, which is that I think Romney has taken some flack from Marco Rubio, uh, from one of his former staffers, Orrin Cass, saying that maybe Romney would be subsidizing people who some of them would not be working, um, which is probably true. Uh, his plan as written is that way. But I do think conservatives should take a good hard look at what governments in other countries do uh, to kind of handle this problem. Like in Brazil, they have a program called Bolsa Familia, which is a conditional cash transfer program, meaning you give cash to low-income families, but you attach some conditions to it. And one of the conditions is like, you have to make sure your kids get vaccinations, you have to make sure your kids go to school, they don't have high truancy rates, or maybe you know go to a family planning class. I think these are this is a way you can kind of marry some of this liberal idea that you know the government should be getting some more cash to these families, but also marry it with the conservative ideas that you have to have some amount of responsibility yourself, you have to have some kind of virtue yourself, you have to be promoting certain pro-social behaviors. And I think once you marry those two things and you kind of promote programs like Bolsa Familia in Brazil, mm -hmm. or there's similar programs all over the world, uh, I think we're getting to a place where we actually can, I think we can use government to promote uh, better, one, to lower poverty by giving people more money, and also to promote more pro-social behavior. I think that kind of marries the liberal conservative ideologies in many ways. Um, and I think that's something we should seriously think about in this country, because I think we often think about, okay, the government should either give people a bunch of money or the government shouldn't do anything, right? Yeah. There, there are other yeah. options besides that, right? So Right, and I think the thing that never gets touched on, and again, kind of going back to Andrew Yang when he ran for president, I, nobody asked him on any debate stage, well, what about the issue of illegal immigration and perceptions that it is out of control by most Americans and that they're going to be getting UBI checks too, right? And if you're paying into it with your taxes in theory, not like the math actually works out, that people who are not Americans are taking those benefits, right? The, the thing that you are supposed to get as a perk for being American. I don't feel like we're ever gonna be able to have a universal basic income debate in earnest until we deal with immigration, the thing that is still tearing this country apart as we speak, um, and it's not getting any better. It's unfortunately not an issue that looks like it's going to be solved with an easy solution. It's plagued us under one president after another, and then flip-flopping on policies back and forth just creates more uncertainty and more chaos. Um, it, it's a shame because Americans actually agree on immigration, American voters. They, uh, they're generally pro-legal immigration. 
supportive of it, and then oppose illegal immigration and support border security. So you really think you would have been able to see some type of compromise or solution, but uh, that's Washington, D.C. for you, I guess. We're all in the swamp. Well, I just, I guess to bring this out to another topic, someone else who the government has failed. We have a pop culture question here that I want to bring forward to everybody. So while we are talking about getting paid, here's a question. Are the Avengers eligible for those stimulus checks? They don't make any money and they certainly don't have any recent information on file with the IRS. And we learned about that in the first episode of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney+. Plus. That's an Avengers spinoff. The Falcon, Sam Wilson, can save the world, but he can't get a loan. His application is rejected at the bank because he can't show sufficient income for the past five years after he was blipped off the face of the earth by Thanos. What did y'all think of this? Because the discourse over this has been cracking me up. I guess that issue here is, can an Avenger get a loan when they don't have income after they've right. been saying, saving the world? I found this funny because Who pays them? The, the kind of woke critics that, that <laughs> blog in the entertainment media and everything were saying, this is capitalism, this is racist, this is markets yeah. hurting people. And I'm like, well, hold on. You want the bank to give the, the loan to people that don't have incomes? Didn't yeah. we have a whole financial it crisis? Came from, it came from at McKinseyist, right? So McKinseyist writes, the bank won't give the Falcon a loan because he doesn't have income for the last five years because billions disappeared in the blip. Even in propaganda movies, capitalism is still the worst. I reject it. Why would, I mean, why would a bank give someone a loan that doesn't have income? Yeah. Is that well, not a recipe shouldn't, for shouldn't disaster? They, but shouldn't they have some special policy because it's like half the planet wasn't there for, you know, for five years. You think like, they'd I have feel, a workaround. You, yeah, they really should have a workaround in this case. Like, it, it's it's not his fault. Like, it doesn't speak to his financial credibility or his credit score or, like, how, if he's good for it or not. Like, it speaks to, like... Everyone not literally not being there for five years. Your right? credit like, score has dropped to at least 400. No, like this, it's an important question. And I think it goes to if the Avengers are going to get paid, who should pay them? A lot of the consternation was over Stony, Tony Stark, basically uh, uh, not ponying up the money after he died in Infinity War. And so, or Endgame, sorry. So you had, this is Esquire saying, Falcon helped kill Thanos, but he can't get a loan. Even the MCU believes in redlining. I mean, I take the point, but that's a racial discrimination question. And so if Sam goes to the bank, Falcon goes to the bank, and he asks for a home loan, he doesn't have income, are they not giving him a loan because he's black, and Peter Parker went in there a few minutes ago, and he was able to get a loan, then that's redlining. But we're just talking about a bank not doing a loan if you can't pay it back. In theory, that's right. good. And the you don't want banks giving loans The funny thing about the pay. Avengers, too, not actually having a clear source of income is... In, in the real world, it's always a question of how close do you make superhero movies and shows to the real world. In the real world, I bet they could start a Patreon or a Substack or a GoFundMe and get millions. I mean, Zed, you're very plugged into that that side of the internet economy. I know like podcasters who get tens of thousands of dollars a month from Patreon. Black Don't Widow's you think Substack that the Avengers newsletter. could? Yeah, I mean, they, they could crowdsource the Avengers, I guess. It, it, it's a, in theory, it's an option. I think that, you know, it's interesting though, because like you're right, like Tony Stark is like was like mad rich, right? And like he should really just have like an Avengers Foundation, and you know you can just like use it as a tax write off or something, and like finance the Avengers. Like and everybody's that? better like, off. It seems but like it's a it's a doable thing. Like isn't pay a corrupting influence? Because that's another thread here yeah. of this controversy. Who's on the board of that foundation? You know that show, The mm. Boys on Amazon. Like they were mm. on the the payroll of a major corporation in that show, and it was about the corrupting influence of you know yada yada yada. So if Stark Industries or even a foundation is paying the Avengers salaries, 
you're going to feel the nudge to do things at some point that benefit that foundation or corporation. And if they work for the government, then right now, like the supervisors, they work for the government, they're paid by the government, and they're going to take cues from governments. They should only be paid by the people. So that's I think, your hot I, take. I think GoFundMe is the best thing for mm -hmm. the Avengers because that's the least corrupting. Mm. All right, these are important questions. Um, we like to end every show on a little bit of good news. So in keeping with that custom, I was struck this week by news that the growth of our electronic waste pile is finally slowing down. A study from Yale was published in the Journal of Industrial Ecology. That's a mouthful. And if that's not on your reading list, then I'm gonna fill you in on it. So hardwired waste has been slowing down since 2015. A big reason for that is kind of what you already know. Like we've already thrown out all of our bunk bulky TVs and our computer monitors and our extra this and extra that, but we are actually condensing everything down onto smartphones. Like everything that we need is on the smartphone, the camera, the television, the shows that we watch. So we have fewer gadgets. And as such, the world is getting cleaner. The study's authors hope that the information is going to take lawmakers uh, towards seeing waste uh, as a resource rather than a problem. So that's pretty good. I'm impressed by that. Yeah, I think it is a good one. I, I So for, for my positive trend that I just noticed recently was you've seen so many headlines lately about anti-Asian violence or about bias crimes or hate crimes. But actually, the, the data and, and studies show that from 2019 to 2020, hate crimes overall decreased 7%. So while there's certainly serious problems on a lot of these issues, things are not actually getting worse all the time in every way. What was that date range? Uh, from 2019 to 2020. What do you think about that, Zid? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, it's really, it's very possible because I think a lot of what's being covered right now, it's mostly like it's common crimes, right? It's like assaults, it's robberies, it's things like that. So we don't have like the, you know, we don't necessarily have reason to think that hate crimes in particular were surging over over the past few months. Uh, that being said, we won't get a really good figure on that until like the FBI releases its crime report, which will be like in a year or something uh, for 2021. But I. I do think, hey, everyone was locked down, everyone was shut inside. If we, if somehow hate crimes were still going up, that'd be a really bad reflection on the United States. Right. So, uh, you know, in that scenario, you would expect them to go down a little bit, uh, given that people just aren't out and doing things as much. So, I think it's with a grain of salt, but I will take it as good news. Zed, do you have anything that are you are interested in this week in terms of good things? Yeah. So recently, um, you know, we hit over three million people vaccinated a day here in the U.S., and I think that's just amazing. If you go back to like. March of last year, February of last year, people were telling us we wouldn't even have a vaccine right now. We would have, we were, a vaccine was a year and a half or two years out. Uh, very few people thought that Trump would make good on his promise through Operation Warp Speed to even have a vaccine before he left office. And now we're, we're looking at a situation where our majority of our seniors will be vaccinated, where uh, the United States will be consistently in the top three countries in the world in terms of vaccination rates, along with, with Israel and the United Kingdom. So I think we're actually, you know, we've had a really rough year with COVID-19. People are down for understandable reasons. Uh, but I think we're actually going to start coming out of it a bit here. And partly that's due to the ingenuity of really great scientists who work their butts off on this. And the systems are actually working. We're actually getting these out to people. We're actually starting to, to recover from this pandemic. And I think we should all we should all be really optimistic about what the future. Maybe we'll, we'll see another roaring 20s. So. Verified true. Couldn't end it on a better note than that. All right. Thanks for joining us. And remember to subscribe on YouTube and your podcatcher and leave us a comment if you would like. I will respond to it personally. And you can also like us at RightlyAJ on Twitter and Facebook. We'll see you again next week for right now.